Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, everybody knows that Muslim societies are more likely to be authoritarian and also marred in civil war. The typical Muslim society is twice as likely to experience a civil war with a thousand battle deaths a year. The big question is why? Islamic culture, Islamic law, the ulema state alliance and oil, oil have all been suggested. But they are inadequate. They fail to explain Muslim countries' heterogeneity. Why are some Muslim countries, like Indonesia, actually very democratic? Why are some Muslim dictatorships so durable, while others, like Somalia, have erupted in civil war? Faisal Ahmed presents a new theory in his book, Conquest and Rents, out now with Princeton University Press. Of all the books I've read in 2023, and... To be honest, that is a large number. This is one of the most original, insightful, and important. It has radically improved my understanding of our world. So I want to share it with you. Okay. So if you head over to my substack, you can see a bunch of graphs. So, for example, such that Muslim countries tend to be more authoritarian. They also have higher risk of civil war. Now, Faisal... Ahmed's starting point is to note the heterogeneity in how Islam was spread. Islam was often, but not always, spread via conquest. A century after the death of Prophet Muhammad, Muslim armies had conquered the entire Middle East, North Africa, Spain, Central Asia and the Sindh. Nomadic tribes quickly overcame weakened Byzantine and Sassanian enemies thanks to their greater mobility, strong military leadership and unifying religious zeal. Muslim conquerors also imposed relatively easy terms. I'd use Ahmed. Conversion took 300 years. Conquerors only demanded taxes, not conversion. Indigenous people increasingly converted. They were attracted by the ideals of equality, tax exemptions and opportunities for trade. By the 11th century, most conquered people were Muslim. But Muslim armies never conquered Indonesia and Malaysia. Different institutions had long-run effects. Muslim conquests led to autocratic institutions. Where Islam spread via military conquest, political authority was consolidated under a dictator, a caliph, with elite slave soldiers, Mamluks, who were compensated with non-hereditary land grants, Iqtar. Absolutist rule was then legitimized by clerics, the ulema. So let me expand. Slave soldiers were marshaled for repression right across the Middle East, Central Asia, Spain, Egypt and Turkey. In the 9th century, Muslim rulers recruited foreign Mamluks, typically nomadic herdsmen, horsemen rather, well in fact they were both, um, who they then trained to become elite fighters. Lacking local kinship affiliations preserved their loyalty to the sultan. Right, They were cut off from any locals. Iqta, land grants to Mamluks, were non-hereditary. They couldn't give them to their kin. So Mamluks thus never gestated an independent aristocracy. 
since after their death, lands were returned to the state. Rents from those Iqtar landholdings were monopolised by the sovereign. This inhibited the emergence of independent merchants and preserved the sovereign centrality. Clerics legitimised the caliph's right to rule the masses in ex- and in exchange the caliph instituted Sharia law, which raised the authority of the clerics. This ulema-state alliance only emerged in the 11th century, when the Abbasid Caliphate resisted Jai states. Thereafter, it was maintained. Um, Jared Rubin, Jared Rubin uh, Amit Kuru, and Timur Quran all, all, all emphasized this ulema state alliance. Okay, uh, and the effects on Sharia law. Now, empirically, uh, Faisal Ahmed shows that Muslim conquest was associated with greater centralization via Mamluk institutions. And he does a, a bunch of robustness checks. If you want to see the graphs and the regressions, see my substack. These authoritarian institutions were maintained long after the Abbasid Caliphate. So Seljuks, Mongols and Ottomans maintained slave soldiers and centralized land grants. Ottoman rulers also instituted the millet system, separating people into their religious communities in order to prevent unified opposition. Spanish provinces with a longer duration of Muslim rule were actually slower to hold their first parliament during the Reconquista, shows Amit. European colonizers, Amit uh, shows, also tended to use indirect rule, which preserved the Ulema state alliance in countries that were previously conquered by Muslim armies. So there is this reiteration and reinforcement of all those Mamluk institutions. Um, and today, former Muslim conquests are now much more authoritarian and spend a lower proportion of government revenue on welfare. That is, with outsiders, outside the governing group. Then Amit says, where Islam spread via trade, authoritarian institutions were far weaker. So merchants introduced Islam into the Sahara and formed peaceful minority communities. Since Amazir and Arab merchants were instructed to trade with Muslims, Africans often converted. Rulers continued to go for Viking, however, not Sharia law. Now, Ahmed doesn't mention this, but African rulers tended to value Muslim scholars' writing as a technology and saw Islam as an additional form of spiritual strength. I just wanted to add that. Okay, so in Southeast Asia, Islam spread through the maritime trade. Sufi clerics and merchants introduced Islam to coastal cities. Instead of allying with government, Sufi clerics often extended their reach by building alliances with traders and craft girls. Tarikas, apologize to my Indonesian friends if I'm mispronouncing that. Malay and Indonesian villages remained relatively egalitarian with collective decision-making. Existing institutions were largely preserved, right? Because Islam was not being enforced through coercive powers, it was uh, more of assimilation. So systematically, these countries tend to be more cohesive. That is, governments spend a higher share of revenue on welfare. Okay, now, so that's the conquest part, that if you have these in Muslim conquest societies, they're much more autocratic, and less cohesive. In non-conquest Muslim societies, they're more cohesive uh, and, and slightly weaker authoritarian institutions. Okay, now we come to the second part of uh, Ahmed's argument, 
rents. So he says oil-based and geopolitical rents can secure dictators, but they can also provoke civil war. Those two effects are contradictory. How can we say that rents prop up dictators, but they also provoke disruption and civil war? That, that's a paradox. How can we explain this? As far as I'm aware, no one has ever explained this. Faisal Ahmed comes to the rescue. He says that oil rents are systematically associated with authoritarianism, regardless of Islam. This association is especially strong among Muslim conquests. So Saudi Arabia and Pakistan are examples of post-conquest autocratic petrostates. The legacy of Muslim conquest seems to compound the autocratizing effects of oil wealth. Um, by contrast, non-conquest petrostates have actually democratized since the 1980s. Now Ahmed turns to civil war. In Muslim conquests, oil wealth does not exacerbate the risk of civil war. In fact, it sustains durable dictatorships and inhibits civil liberties. So Muslim conquest plus oil wealth, you're dead, you're dead set to have a, an autocracy like Saudi Arabia. Now, interesting, he points out that US troops have played a really significant role by protecting incumbents, but keeping the peace and preventing civil war. You know, Americans love oil. Sorry, pause for drink. That wasn't professional. Okay. Foreign aid is another kind of rent. Generous foreign aid sustained dictatorships in Muslim non-oil producers. But when that aid fell, civil war erupted. Uh, systematically, uh, Ahmed shows that in Muslim conquest societies with Mamluk institutions, a rise in foreign aid strongly predicts authoritarianism while the fall in foreign aid strongly predicts civil war. So the effect is much, much stronger in Muslim societies that were previously conquered. So let's give the example of Somalia. That has received considerable foreign aid, but when the Gulf aid increased, uh, Barre, how do I pronounce his name? Barre uh, favoured selected clans and increased repression. Conflict only began when oil prices collapsed and aid dried up. So when the oil revenues fell uh, in the mid-1980s, Muslim countries were much more likely to experience civil war. Faisal Ahmed and Eric Worker find that civil war was eight percentage points more likely in Muslim countries. Now, in cohesive societies, declining rents can pave the way for democracy. From the mid-1970s to the early 1980s, Latin American authoritarians propped themselves up with access to cheap international finance. Petrodollar borrowing was huge. It amounted to 20% of combined exports over the late 1970s. When this pillar crumbled, they lost control. And the continent democratized. So the loss of rents in a cohesive society like Latin America enables democratization because rulers can no longer lose funds and they lack legitimacy. Eastern Europe underwent a parallel process. When the Soviet Union cut subsidies to Eastern European allies, they lost funds and legitimacy. Now, of course, there are many other causes, but I think this is a very nice point, that the loss of funds then enabled 
democratization. So in both Latin America and Eastern Europe, a decline in rents paved the way for democratization. So Muslim countries are exceptional. An exogenous decline in transfers actually exacerbates political violence rather than democratization. So now we come to a big question. Why did a decline in rents promote democracy in Latin America and Eastern Europe, but civil war in Muslim countries? Ahmed argues that the Muslim conquest societies are less cohesive. So when rents dry up, civil war erupts. By contrast, falling rents in cohesive countries tends to promote democratization. He defines institutional cohesion as the share of government revenue that is shared with groups out of power. Uh, so he follows Besley in person. He also references Alessina, a 2003 paper that religious, uh, linguistic and ethnic frat- fractionalization hurts governance. So he also shows systematically that cohesiveness is associated with democracy and that cohesiveness is lower in Muslim societies. Now, why, why are these Muslim conquest societies lacking in cohesion? His argument is that Mamluk institutions inhibited cohesiveness. To be honest with you, I'm not convinced. Why would state centralization and foreign soldiers promote sectarian violence as seen in Iraq and Pakistan like what's what's the what's the connection I don't get it I don't get it why would state centralization cause fractionalization of different groups of different ethnicities you know a lot of these people are defining as Arabs what's what's the fractionalization well allow me to offer an alternative mechanism patrilineal tribes In Muslim conquest societies, indigenous peoples gradually converted to Islam and adopted the Arabic language. As part of this cultural assimilation, they also adopted tribes and cousin marriage. To this day, cousin marriage remains especially high in Muslim-majority countries that were originally part of the Umayyad Caliphate. Close-knit patrilineal kinship was cemented by Sharia law, which recognizes succession through the male line, male agnate's inheritance, paternal ownership of children, and easy divorce for men. Paradoxically, patrilineal kinship was also reinforced by Islamic stipulation of female inheritance rights. Kin marriage kept wealth in the family while also consolidating fraternal solidarity and shared honor. To this day, kinship remains paramount. Arabs continue to rely on wasta. Social connections are necessary for jobs, to secure permits, avoid trickery and resolve conflicts. Even middle class professional Jordanians acquire social insurance from their kin. Loyalty is also culturally esteemed. Girls are encouraged to put family first above narrow self-interest. So while Ahmed rightly highlights low cohesiveness in Muslim conquests, I suggest that the causal mechanism is not Mamluk institutions, but patrilineal kinship. And that is celebrated in the famous Arab proverb, which I'm sure you all know, I against my brother, I and my brother against my cousin, I, my brother and my cousin against the world. Right? That is the fractionalization that Alethina et al. don't discuss, but kinship is a major form of fractionalization. Kinship, clans, tribes, 
huge, hugely important. Okay, let me add one more caveat to Ahmed's otherwise brilliant book, The Fuller Jihads. What about The Fuller Jihads? He doesn't mention them. Ahmed totally omits them, but they are actually perfectly consistent with his theory. This is another form of Muslim conquest which had centralizing um, effects. Okay, so let me summarize. Conquest and Rents, it's out, I think, last month. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Uh, it helps resolve a major conundrum. Muslim conquests promoted state centralization. High rents help sustain these autocracies, while falling rents trigger civil war. But non-conquest Muslim societies are more cohesive. Indonesia is thus like Eastern Europe and Latin America. Falling rents promoted democratization. If you were remotely curious, I strongly recommend you go out and buy it. Thank you very much. Oh, as a minor point, I saw the Barbie film today. I found it very boring. I didn't enjoy it at all. Uh, it's probably fun for girls in their early teenage years. Um, I, w I wasn't entirely convinced. In fact, I missed reading this book on conquest. Okay, thank you. Bye.